Well, good morning and happy new year to everyone. I hope that you've had a wonderful time celebrating with friends and with family over the last couple of weeks as Christmas and New Year are so close together, but I hope that you have enjoyed some time with friends and family. A whole year, another year is behind us, and we have one right before us. Some of you have already failed on your New Year's resolutions. Like day two, you've already messed up, so, uh, but we, some of us had a great year in 2021. Like it was a really good year. You met all of your goals. You kept your resolutions. Like you just had a wonderful year. And some of you, not so much. Last year was a tremendous challenge. I hope that 2022 is better for you, but maybe you're one of those people that you just dealt with sickness after sickness last year. As a matter of fact, half our church is sick this morning. And so say hello to those who are watching online because there's a lot of them this morning who are sick. And so maybe you were just, last year was just riddled with sickness, or maybe you lost a loved one last year, or you encountered significant financial struggles, or you lost your, your job last year. I mean, last year just has gone down in the history books as just being a really challenging year. And I really hope, though, that no matter what you went through, that you learned during those seasons to lean on the Lord and to trust Him, and I hope that this year is better. I pray the same things can be said of, of anything that I endure as well in this new year. So we have to keep our eyes on Jesus and trust Him. But I'm really excited about what God has in store for our specific church here at West Hill in this new year. He's already been moving. We've already seen him doing things in the lives of people. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen people pass from death to life, people who've given their lives to Jesus and called on him to save them. We're already hearing of, of gospel conversations that are happening from you to those who you love deeply and want to see come to know Christ We've, we've already heard of growth in significant ways happening inside of so many of our families. And so that's encouraging to me as a pastor, watching people grow in their faith and their devotion to the Lord and serving Him and honoring Him with their lives. It's so awesome to see and it's so awesome to celebrate. Last year was actually a really good year for our church we made some significant changes. Everything that we experienced, we expected and we planned for, and God still blessed, and he still did amazing things in our church. Several dozen people giving their lives to Jesus and being baptized, and it's just awesome to be a part of God's work. We just get to witness God working in our church and in our community and in our own families and in our own lives, and it's a beautiful thing. Our mission here is simple. It's to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And we kind, of, we kind of put that through the funnel, as Pastor Michael talked about earlier, of this, this idea of building, sharing, and bringing, where we build the relationship, we share the story, and we bring the people. As we, as we give our lives to Jesus, when we are saved, then we look to him and we follow his example. And that's what we encourage our people to do each and every week, is to look to Jesus, to look to his word, and to follow his example, and to live obediently to him in all areas of our lives. And so we are on a mission 
that is tethered to the heart of Jesus, and we do everything within our power to stay focused on that mission and that vision. We're not perfect, we won't get it right, Jesus is, so we look to him because he's the only one worth following. And so that's who we wanna follow. And that's who we want you to follow as well. So keep your eyes on Jesus. And so this morning we're starting a brand new series called How It's Done. And we're gonna be looking at the, the first church that we have on record, and that's found in our Bibles in the book of Acts. And, and the, the, the church in Acts, the church in Jerusalem specifically, was the first church ever born outside of Jesus' ministry on this earth. And so we're going to look at this church, and we're going to follow and, and kind, of, kind of look at what this church did, and then look at how we can implement what this church did today in our own culture. We have so much to learn as people. I have so much to learn as a Jesus follower. I am nowhere near uh, reaching that status of having arrived. And I don't think anyone in this room has. I think it's, uh, as Eugene Peterson used to say, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That we are daily pursuing Jesus and following Jesus and we never arrive until we reach glory. And, and, and I don't even like using the words as we've arrived because we still don't arrive. Because we worship at the feet of Jesus and we, we just live in his glory forever. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we don't arrive. The church never arrives. There is no perfect church. We will never be a perfect church. If you're looking for that, you're at the wrong one. Because we'll never be that for you. We will never meet every need that you have, but we will strive to point you to the one who can. And so that's my goal as a pastor, as a leader. But we have so much to learn about the church and what it, what it did in history— we, we can learn from the mistakes of church history. So many things have happened throughout church history that we, can, we don't want to repeat. But we can learn so many valuable lessons. And specifically, we can learn valuable lessons from this church here in Jerusalem. And this church wasn't perfect, but we can look to the Bible and all the churches that came forth out of this one and see how God uses the church. But here's one thing that is certain about this church here in Jerusalem specifically and throughout the region is they, they were focused on Jesus. They were focused on following him and making his name known and his name famous among all names and other gods in their culture. So we begin this series with a strange word, a strange focus point, and that is the word peace. And so this morning, I, I want you to think about peace. And I want you to just think in your own heart and mind, what does peace mean for you? Maybe for a moment, though, I'd like you to draw your attention in your mind to the lack of peace. That maybe there is a lack of peace in your own heart. And we, we know what it feels like to not have peace. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe you live in a family that has a ton of tension, and that tension is, is such a tremendous challenge for family life. Maybe it's an issue, parents with a child. Maybe it's a disobedience issue. Maybe it's a faith issue. 
Maybe you have children in your home who, who are separated from God. They don't know Jesus as their Savior. And so there's a, there is a tension that, that is residing in your family. And so it's, in some ways, it's kind of, it's, it's robbing your heart and your mind of peace. Because you just can't live at peace because of the spiritual position of your children. Or maybe you just have disobedient children, and that is robbing your family of peace. Or it could just simply be you are a terrible parent, and that is robbing peace in your family. And your inability to humble yourself before Jesus and surrender your heart and your anger and your bitterness and your lack of discipline and all the things that you have going on inside of you is robbing your family of peace during this season. Maybe it's a coworker. It could be a harsh boss, someone who just, he, they just, they just bring tension into the space. And we have to wrestle with the tension of a lack of peace in our lives. We have to deal with that. And it could be a gossiping coworker or someone who's just simply making trouble. We have all felt that word of unrest. Many of you are feeling that right now. As your mind is kind of thinking through all the things that are robbing you of peace. And just think about that feeling, what it feels like. The absence of it is a challenging thing. And the early Christians that we're going to look at here, they, they experienced the same things. But what about lack of peace in the church? You see, many reasons exist for for why it sometimes lacks peace, why the church lacks peace. It could be a loss of vision. It could be sinful behavior. It could be idol worship uh, and persecution could be on that list. And, and so we'll talk about that as well here in just a moment. The early church dealt with the same things. And we're going to look at something that took place in the early church here in Acts chapter 9 in just a moment. But it didn't always stay the way we see it this morning. That the church is full of people and people are sinners. And so there's always going to be this tension and this wrestling match that we have with the issue of peace and unrest inside of our churches. The early church dealt with it. Now, what we're going to see here specifically in Acts is, is they dealt with persecution. And persecution is, is a thing that every every church has dealt with or will deal with, and, and, and it doesn't necessarily affect us like it did them, but our day could be coming. I don't know, but we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But in Acts chapter 8, we see, we see that, you know, what this series is centered around is the church in Jerusalem, and what they learned is still relevant to every church that has existed and will exist in the future. Uh, the, the church in Jerusalem influences our church today. And so if you have your Bible, find Acts chapter 8. We will land in, in Acts 9 here in just a moment, but we're going to start out in verse 8. And a couple of things that I want to point out is our church here in Worcester, Ohio, this church exists today because of the church in Jerusalem. 
As we just sang in that song, the spirit lit the flame that, that birthed the church and the church, it grew and, and, and God blessed it and, and every church that, that is gospel centric, that is gospel Jesus focused exists today because of this church and the faithfulness of these people. The faithfulness of Peter and, and, and James and John, these early church leaders who launched this, these churches and they, they were obedient to Jesus and how he set it up. We sit here today, we stand here today, we gather here today because of this church. And this first church was set up following the resurrection of Jesus. We talked about this last week, but Jesus spends 40 days on this earth following his resurrection, teaching the apostles and preparing them for what was to come. And he promises them something in Acts chapter one, and that something that he promised was the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter two, the Spirit comes and it is unleashed. And we see how it works in the early church. And when the church is doing what it should, God blesses it. When the church is focused on what it should be focused on, God gets behind that and he blesses that. And that's what I want us to be focused on. That's what I want us to think about. But here's something else that happens when a church is doing what it should. It attracts all different types of people. It attracts good people and it attracts not so good people. Now, don't quote Jeremiah to me that we're all deceitful for, you know, all those. I get it. But what I mean by bad people and good people is it attracts people who love Jesus and they want to be involved in his mission. Then it attracts people who are kind of not okay with Jesus and following him. They like to do their own thing. And, and so I'm not calling you a bad person because you're not 100% surrendered, but you bring problems to the church when you come to us in that position. But the church has all different kinds of people. And the church encountered persecution. In our context here, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Hellenists. And when the church is doing what it's supposed to do, it gathers the attention of everyone. And so in Acts 7, things have escalated to the point where now Stephen is, is martyred for following and proclaiming Christ. And Paul, who is called Saul at this point, was responsible. So just look at verse 1, the first part. And here's what verse 1 of chapter 8 in Acts says. And Saul approved of his execution. And so I wanted to talk a minute about this issue of persecution in the church. You see, Saul was sent by Jewish leaders to do this work of persecuting Christians. Now, we know that the early church had its own unique set of issues even before the persecution because people are involved in the church, but this is, this is one of the main things that are highlighted here in Acts chapter seven, eight, and nine, is this issue of persecution which Saul and his, his, his team were responsible for. Paul even tells us later that Stephen was killed with his very approval, that, that, that he basically signed the document that said Stephen is to leave this earth. He, he, the killers actually laid Stephen's belongings at Saul's feet. Now, I don't want you to get confused by the two names for this man referred to here as Saul. His name did not change. We've been taught that for centuries in the church, but Saul's name did not change. Saul was simply his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Latin name. 
And so this is intentional because he's, he's referred to as Paul because now he is taking the gospel to a group of people who needed to know his identity. And his name would be more appropriate. Now, the account that Luke gives us, and you don't have to turn there, but there's a little history about what and who Paul was. If you want to write this down in Acts chapter 22, Paul was a Jew. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and he was brought up in this city, in the city of Jerusalem. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. And what that simply means, if you know your Old Testament history, is Paul was a Pharisee. So Paul was an elite person. He wasn't necessarily Caesar. He wasn't a king. He wasn't, he wasn't what we would consider as a really, really important person, but he was a very important man in this culture. If you know anything about the Old Testament history, you know that he had the first five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah. He had all of that memorized. Paul knew the Old Testament law. Paul was a very educated man. At the, uh, in the manner of the law of our fathers, he was zealous for God. He was zealous for the old covenant God, as you all are to this day. And he says that he persecuted this way, which this way is what the church was called in early history, to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me with witness. From them I received letters to take the brothers and I journeyed from Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So that is a little bit about what Luke writes about Paul later in Acts, in Acts chapter 22. So just go and study that on your own time. But back to Acts chapter 8. So Paul is there Saul is there when Stephen is executed, and the last part of verse 1 continues. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That word ravaging is a really important word. He was making a severe mess for the early church. That word ravaging, it means severity. That he was causing deep anguish in the lives of the way, of early Christians, of early church followers. He's creating extremely large obstacles for the churches, for believers. We talked about this a little bit in December, but that's about to change. And it's a good thing. Because in Acts chapter 9, we come to a, a pivotal moment in the storyline for Paul. And we see Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. We're not going to read it, but I would encourage you to read it. We see that he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus where he is struck with blindness. And then he's told to go into Damascus and where he is to wait for three days. And Ananias is going to come and, and, and Peter or Paul will retell this story later in Acts where he says that Ananias arrives and he tells him to call on the name of Jesus. And in that moment, Paul is saved and he's regenerated and he's given new life. And then he's told to wait. And Luke says that he spends a little bit of time with the apostles. And then this former Pharisee, prosecutor of Christians, he gets to work. 
and he starts proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 26 of Acts chapter 9, and that's where we're going to kind of keep our focus this morning is here in these verses of Acts chapter 9. In verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned this they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. One thing that is interesting to note about the life of Paul is this dude is always in trouble. He comes right out the gate in Acts chapter 9. Dude gives his life to Jesus, is called to preach, learns a little bit more, gets out there, and immediately he's in trouble. Immediately he starts preaching the gospel, and when you start preaching the gospel, it attracts good people and it attracts bad people. There is a cost to proclaiming the gospel, and Paul is in trouble. People are also scared because this guy who was going into homes and dragging people from their homes and and executing them for following this Jesus of Nazareth, he now is, it seems like, he's got an agenda. He's faking that he loves Jesus so he can have more of an impact on the church. And so he's in trouble, and he's always having issues with the church, but he's attracting the, the attention of those who he used to work for and with. And so he starts disputing and arguing with the Hellenists, and they want to kill him. They want him dead. And so these brothers, these people of the way, they get him out of, time, out of town. I mean, these are crazy times for the church. I mean, if you could just, and I love to do this when I read my Bible, I love to just try to place myself on the pages. What must it have been like to be a part of the church in Jerusalem? Way worse than what we've got going on in 2022, that's for sure. But this church couldn't be stopped. Now, we here at West Hill, we don't currently experience persecution. I'm not saying that it doesn't or it won't happen, but it doesn't happen like what we are seeing here in Jerusalem and throughout the pages of our scripture. But what happens when the church stays on mission? It's persecution and challenge and struggle. And and we're not experiencing that today, but it could happen. But if it did happen, would we be ready? Or are we too soft? I mean, when you think about it, are you ready for actual persecution? Am I ready for actual persecution? I I don't know that that I am. Would we be willing to, to sneak someone out the back door so they could escape the authorities? Or are we brave enough to stand up against the social persecution for our families because we're associated with Jesus Christ and we align ourselves with the values of Christ? Are we prepared to live that kind of life? It's hypothetical at this point for us. But it's, it's what these believers were dealing with every single day. 
And so here's what happened in their churches for a time. And this is our key verse for this entire series. And so I would encourage you to memorize this verse, to put it to memory, just to have reference of it. But here is what Luke says about this church during this season in verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. It says, So the church throughout all Judea, because the church has now begun to scatter, it's begun to spread, other churches have been started. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Our goal for this series is going to, we're going to try to understand how the church can be multiplied so it can grow. And we're going to look at different elements. But here's what one translation says about this verse. It says, The church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Now, peace is vital. But how does it happen? Now, the last couple of years, we have lived in a world that has just been in unrest. There's been a lack of peace in our culture, and that's certainly been our story. We're not encountering persecution, but there has been a season of unrest, and, and we're not alone. Almost every single church in our community is dealing with the same types of things that our church is dealing with. No church in our community has pre-COVID attendance back. Every church in our community is 70 to 50% less attendance than they were pre-COVID. We, we just have a ton of issues going on inside the church today. People are not finding their way back. They're not adjusting their habits. There's division over cultural issues. You name it, we've dealt with it in the last year to year and a half to two years. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not equating that to persecution. I don't believe that we've been persecuted, especially when you compare that to what's going on in Afghanistan and for those churches over there. I mean, those Christians are actually dying for gathering for their faith. But struggles come from the outside, absolutely. We deal with issues outside the church, attacks on our values, what we stand for, who we are as Christians, but a lot of our struggles come from within. You see, peace is vital in the church, and in America, our struggle comes often from inside, and, and it's an issue that we feel with, and so we deal with. So what are the enemies of peace in the church? And you could make your own list this morning. I, I mean, when you think about it, there are dozens of things that we could highlight as peace-robbing things in the church. The list could be endless, but we're going to target three of the main ones that we see throughout the scriptures and that we see in our own culture inside the church. So what are the enemies of peace? The first one is simple. It's false teaching. We have to avoid false teaching. In 2 Peter 2, Peter says, but there were also false prophets in Israel just as there were false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. The master would be Jesus. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. And many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. So one of the first things that robs the church of peace is the issue of false teaching. But what is false teaching? False teaching is not just a disagreement that we have on 
smaller issues inside of our doctrinal stances. But here's what false teaching is. It's any idea that adds to or takes away from or contradicts or even nullifies the doctrine that is given to us in the Bible. We have what we're given in the Bible. That's where we get doctrine. That's how we build our churches. That's where we actually build our lives is on the doctrine of God's word. And so if someone brings something to you and it is in contradiction to the doctrine that we see in the word of God, then it is a false teaching. And we have to be careful how we address that. We have to be careful what we lump into false teaching. It's not issues that, that are hotly debated in our church cultures usually. But here's just some, some words that you could maybe put next to false teaching. Things like opposition to Christ. That's what Peter is referring to. There was an opposition to Christ and his bodily resurrection from the dead. That was the big issue in the early church. If you look at Ephesus, you look at these other churches, they were false teachers had kind of snuck in and they were preaching that the resurrection hadn't happened yet, but that it was coming. And this was a huge issue in the early church, but it was opposition to Christ because Christ had already come and he'd already risen. But here's another thing. False teaching can seem really clever. It seems intelligent. When people use really big words and they try to trap you with maybe your lack of education or your lack of depth when it comes to a language or some specific type of teaching, they try to be clever about it. Like you've missed something because there's something inside of the Bible that you just can't see. And so it seems intelligent. It's deceptive, which is, a, which is, a, which is just a bigger word for, the, for misleading. False teaching will just mislead you. It's destructive. It causes great harm. It dishonors God. It brings him shame. It brings him disgrace. It plays with your emotions. And here's the sad part, is it never stops. It never stops. Paul Luke writes that in Acts 20 that fierce wolves will come in among you and they will not spare those who are among you. They are relentless. False teachers who are not centered and focused on Jesus will not point you to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says to have nothing to do with them. The second enemy of peace in the church is one that we're all so familiar with. And that's the issue of gossip. We have to avoid it. It separates. It, it costs and it erodes our trust. It destroys. And the Bible actually compares the issue of gossip to death. That there is something that happens when we participate in the sinful behavior of gossip. It destroys peace inside the church. False teaching and gossip are two of the biggest issues in the church. Is it an issue with you? 
Proverbs 16, 28 says a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. That should be underlined. Because sometimes it's I'm idle and I'm upset about something and so I'm gonna text or I'm gonna email, or I'm gonna call my friend for coffee, and we're just gonna talk about all the things that we don't like, and all the people that we don't like, and all the decisions that this person or that person makes, and it separates, it destroys, it creates division. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to say. Proverbs 26, without wood and fire, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. Gossip will wreak havoc on the peace in the life of a church, but it will wreak havoc, havoc on your own heart. It doesn't work out for your health to be a gossip. I know I'm moving through these fast because I'm out of time. But the last enemy that we're going to talk about today is idol worship. We have to avoid them. Now, what are idols? We have the Old, text, Old Testament context. We know that things like golden calves and, and, and jewelry and things, you know, things that were created to be, to be worshipped and to be, to be served and, and to be honored. We, we know what those things are, gods of Baal, these types of things. And in the New Testament, those things still existed, but they, they, they take on different characteristics in the New Testament. You know, they would be sinful desires. Uh, Other examples would be anything that we put before God as an idol. It could be our career, it could be relationships, it could be, uh, it could be our preferences, it could be anything that, anything could be placed on, on on a pedestal that we worship as people. We're called to avoid those things. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We have a lot of idols in our hearts and in our minds. What's yours? I, I, I don't know if, if it's sexual immorality or if it's impurity or if it's a, if it's a passion that is, that is elevated beyond your pursuit of Jesus and making his name famous in your life. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, 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 your, own, it's your own accomplishments or I, I, I don't know, but Paul says that we need to put those things to death that we need to take these things that have taken up residence in our hearts as idols, as things that we worship. It could be a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a child, a parent. It could be your job. It could be your dream job. It could be all of those things. Paul says, put them to death. He doesn't say, don't pursue them. He doesn't say, don't work hard. Just don't make them what they shouldn't be. You see, our world, it pressures us to worship at the feet of ourselves and our sinful desires. Now, this isn't easy, but with the Bible and the Holy Spirit, you can wage a successful war against all three of those things. 
First John 5, it simply just says, keep away from idols. That's how he ends his whole letter to the church in Jerusalem. Keep away from idols. So we see what will prevent peace, but what can we do to pursue peace, to advance peace? Do your actions pursue peace or prevent peace? In Romans 14, verse 19, Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So make every effort to be at peace with each other. That's the simple answer to unrest and a lack of peace in the church and in your own life is to make every effort to be at peace. In Ephesians 4 verse 3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How? Well, if you write these verses down, you can read them later, but verse 2, Ephesians 4 says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So do your actions pursue peace or prevent peace? We can do this by loving one another. In John 13, it says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Ephesians 4.32, we know it says to be kind and compassionate with one another one another just as Christ has forgiven you. And in John 15, Jesus gives us a command. He says that we are to love each other as he has loved us. Do you want to live at peace? Be at peace? Do you want to live at peace with one another? Love one another. It's a job, I know. It can be hard, but it's worth it. And then lastly, we serve one another in humility. Galatians 5 says that we are to serve one another humbly in love. 1 John 1, or 3.18 says, Let us not love with words or speech alone, but with actions and in truth. In 1 Peter 4.10, it says we've all received gifts. We should use them to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And Paul sums it all up in Romans chapter 12, where he says that we are to live in harmony with one another. The fruit of these actions. Loving one another and serving one another, the fruit of those actions is peace. And so do you want to be at peace? Do you want our church to experience peace? If the answer to that question is yes, then you, then we, then I have to make every effort. That's what Paul says. We have to make every effort. It will only happen when we love and we serve one another in humility. So do your actions pursue peace or prevent peace? And here's what I want to challenge all of us to do today. To forget everything that I said. That's what I want you to do. And I want you to memorize, or I want you to read Philippians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. Paul writes these words, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God... Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or to grasp. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. 
He did not have to come and love you, but he did. And he took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's love, that's service, that's humility. If you want to know how to make every effort to be at peace in the church and in your community and in your family, that's how you do it. You follow his example. There's no better example to follow, and we do it in humility. So the question is the same. Do your actions pursue peace or prevent peace? Do your actions pursue it or prevent it? You have to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in your own heart and how you answer that question. Maybe it starts with repentance. I need to repent of my issues with my tongue and gossip. Maybe I need to repent of placing all of these things in front of my relationship with Jesus and his mission and his cause and his purposes in our world. Maybe I need to repent of those things. Maybe I'm allowing some type of teaching into my life that is in contradiction to the word of God, which Jesus says is is perfect and it's here for us and to guide us and to, to get to the deepest parts of all of our questions. Maybe it just starts with these three things. And maybe you would add some things to the list. That's between you and God. And so I would encourage you to do that. But we have to remember that these are the enemies of peace. False teaching, gossip, idol worship. So make every effort to be at peace through loving one another and through serving one another. And lastly, peace, real peace, it starts and it ends with Jesus. Real peace can only be found in him. And so if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you know what it feels like to have that, <laughs> to have that inner peace. I'm thinking of Poe from, what's the movie? Uh, the pa- Panda, Kung Fu Panda, like inner peace, you know? In order to have real inner peace, it's only found in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 5, we have been justified through faith and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The only way you can have peace is through Jesus. The only way you can have real peace is through Jesus. And so maybe you're here this morning and you don't have the peace of Christ dwelling in your heart. You can change that today. You can be at peace. You can call on Jesus to save you. You can recognize that you are a sinner, that you are separated from God because of that sin. You can realize that you can never be good enough to pay for your sin. The Bible says that that there is a penalty for sin. It's death, it's separation from God forever in a place called hell. But God loved us so much that he sent himself through the person of Jesus to pay the price for our sin and to give us life and life eternal. And Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And Jesus even says the reason reason for his arrival on this earth is so that others may believe and know true life. And so maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You can know him today. So will you surrender your heart? Will you repent? Will you confess your sin? Will you call on him to save you? I hope you will. I would love to talk to you about that at some point. So 
call the office, shoot me an email, see me at the end of the service. I'd, I would love to do nothing more than talk to you about how you can know Jesus as your Savior and experience real, lasting peace. So church family, for us as we close, the real question is, do your actions pursue peace or prevent peace? When we think about body life here at West Hill, will we experience peace as a church because we are making every effort to live at peace with one another? By loving one another and by serving one another. And so if we follow the example of Jesus, it's through the lens of humility and where we love each other with his heart and we serve each other with his heart and we do it all through his example and by his power. And so I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if we're going to experience any kind of persecution this year or in the years to come. But one thing I know is certain, we can endure it together when we live at peace together. And so will you pursue it or will you prevent it? We play a role. What role will you play? Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for the opportunity that we've had to gather together to hear and to see what you have done in your church. God, I'm so thankful for the example of the church in Jerusalem and all throughout these regions here in the book of Acts and how you blessed them and how you used them in mighty ways. God, the only way that we will accomplish the vision that you've given us is to follow the guide that you've given us. And that's your word and that's the example of your son, Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that we would be a people who are following hard after you, that we would live to honor you and to serve you and to love you. And through that, and through your example, we would love one another and serve one another well. God, help us to live at peace with one another. God, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've done, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.